Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Better than you. Yeah, I've contracted some kind of illness, possibly stress-related. Yeah. Yay! What are we watching today? Well, Sarah, we're watching a sequel? To a movie we've already seen. Um, This is The Return of Dr. X from 1939. So why why do you say sequel? Because it sounds like it's a sequel. What makes it a squeaky sequel? (laughs) It certainly sounds like it's a sequel. It's from the same studio uh, that made the original Warner Brothers. They're sort of following the example of Universal Studios here when it comes to making their return to the horror genre by reviving a familiar... I mean, franchises didn't... Like, the concept of movie franchises didn't didn't really exist back then, but a familiar franchise. Sure. Um, The original... There's, like, Charlie Chan. Yeah. That would be a franchise? Yeah, I mean, I just mean, like, they didn't call them that back then. That wasn't really, like, a concept. They were just series, right? What do you think someone from back then would think of, like, the Avengers or the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Well, I mean, we're going to get to that in future episodes, because really the first real movie franchise cinematic universe thing is is the Universal Studios monster movies. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I was just sort of reluctant to use the word franchise, because this is the second one. <laughs> but... Sure. Gotta start somewhere. Yeah. So, the original Doctor X was the first Warner Brothers horror movie... Uh, way back in the Halcyon days of 1932. So it sort of makes a bit of sense that when they return to the genre here at the start of its renaissance, it's with the return of Dr. X. Mm -hmm. Uh, We liked the original Dr. X, right, Sarah? We did. It's currently ranked number 32 on the list. To be fair, like, it's currently episode 71, and this was episode 33. Yeah. So it's kind of shifted as yeah, other movies come in. For sure. But, like, that's, that's like, the top third of the list, I think. We've got about 70 movies on the list. Yeah. 70-something. Uh, so, so that's it's a, in the top half. It's in the top half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's... Exactly. It ranks higher than The Mummy. Exactly. And it makes sense that Dr. X did so well, because it was kind of an early introduction of Michael Curtiz, Faye Ray, and Lionel Atwell to the show. Yeah, all, all favorites of ours. Yeah. It also had synthetic flesh. And the film is best known for its two-tone technicolor, which we loved mm-hmm. completely. I believe this was Warner Brothers' very first venture into horror. Uh, so it kept its you know traditional style, urban style, fast-talking reporter, detective types, and just like transplanted those tropes into a horror genre. Yeah, yeah. Also making it the first contemporary set American horror film. That's right, because the the American horror films that had come earlier had been, you know, set in London and set in Victorian times and and tried to kind of other the setting of these horror movies. And Dr. X put it in a contemporary urban setting. Yeah. The film follows reporter Lee Tracy... That w- that's the actor. Yep. The reporter himself is Lee Taylor. You got it. Uh, investigating murders that all have cannibalistic elements. Um, I should probably note that this film is pre-enforcement of the code. Mm-hmm. The police invite Dr. Xavier for his medical opinion on the case, and also to investigate Dr. Xavier's medical facility as they have. the police have found some clues linking these murders, to someone from this facility. Dr. Xavier and all of the other professors there are all possible suspects, each with their own, like, quirk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone studies cannibalism, someone is obsessed with the full moon, and all of the murders happen during the full moon. Yeah. Um, So it's very pulpy. To kind of save face in the media, Dr. Xavier convinces the police to give him 48 hours to find the murderer himself. 
so they go off to a secluded, spooky manor with all of the suspects, and by the end of the film, we learn that it's Dr. Wells who is the murderer. And while the killings all had what they thought was a cannibalistic element, it turns out Dr. Wells was actually gathering ingredients to create synthetic flesh. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like an amazing movie, right? <laughs> um, we really enjoyed it. Despite its long divergences into comedic scenes with the reporter, but we really did appreciate how they kind of separated the horror from the comedic scenes. Like, during the two climactic horror scenes, Taylor is nowhere to be seen. He gets knocked out at one point, um, and then the other, he's just lost in the house and we don't see him, so the horror scenes can kind of stand as horror. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to Warner Brothers, with this being their very first horror film. This is also fairly early in that first horror boom of the 30s, so they were a little tepid about doing horror, so that kind of explains the comedic sequences, but you made a good point about how the film's production between its cinematography, its set design, the two-tone technicolor, everything like that, making it more horror than the story itself. Yeah, we really liked the look of that movie. Yeah, like, the two-tone Technicolor makes it really awesome. It makes it feel really spooky with, like, these green tints everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the set design uh, was just fantastic, especially when they get to the old dark house. Yeah, for sure. So all of this is kind of leading to the fact that Warner Brothers was like, we're really good at the fast-talking, quick-witted type of thing, let's just take that and that setup and put it in the old dark house genre. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of that film, Dr. Wells has a terrible demise. Uh, he gets... T- <laughs> a kerosene lamp gets thrown in him and he bursts into flame and he runs over the edge of a cliff and falls into the ocean below. Um, but Dr. X, Dr. Xavier, is alive and well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's not really a super big surprise that he returns for this one, but my understanding is it's not Lionel Atwell this time. Yeah, so in the original film, Dr. X was kind of like a... Red herring. Yes, exactly. Like, you, you're sort of meant to think it's going to be Lionel Atwell who's the villain, and it turns out he's not uh, the whole time. So that's one of the reasons why he's still alive at the end of the movie. <laughs> Making this sequel... Well, let's just say that retaining story continuity with the earlier film wasn't particularly important to Warner Brothers. Um, I mean, it's seven years later. People might not fully remember some details. Yeah, it feels like they really wanted to use the Dr. X name for the name value of it. That people would remember that there was this horror movie called Dr. X a few years back that they had liked. But not expecting people to really like remember what it was maybe about. Mm -hmm. Um, Because while the X still stands for Xavier, uh, his first name, his appearance, and his backstory have all changed. Okay. It's his cousin. (laughs) The story for this sequel uh, was actually drawn from a pulp magazine short story called The Doctor's Secrets by William J. Macon, who was a pretty big deal pulp writer at the time. Uh, And so the central character of that short story was changed to be Xavier uh, to allow for that connection with the earlier film. All kind of standard fare for a studio to do. Yes. You know, this isn't out of the realm of what they do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even today, right? Like, um, uh, you know, like very famously, the second Die Hard movie was based on a novel that was not related to Die Hard in any way. The third Die Hard movie was supposed to be, like, I think a Lethal Weapon <laughs> sequel and got turned into a Die Hard movie. Like, yeah, this is this is standard. So this film was produced by Brian Foy, who was the head of Warner Brothers' B-movie unit. Uh, so unlike the original Dr. X, which was an A picture and had, you know, that expensive two-tone Technicolor and everything, this is black and white, this is low budget, this is B-movie. Granted, you know, a major studio's B-movie is still higher up in budget than, like, a Poverty Row movie, right? For sure. 
So Brian Foy had gotten his start as a vaudeville performer with his father, Eddie Foy. Uh, Eddie Foy was a very famous vaudeville performer and would have all of his seven children act with him in his vaudeville act. Um, And then as he grew up, he became a songwriter in his 20s, and then finally a film producer and director. And Brian Foy actually produced 214 films from 1924 to 1963, and directed 41 films from 1921 to 1934. At Warner Brothers, they called him the Keeper of the Bees. (laughs) I love that. So initially, the title role of Dr. X was to be portrayed by Boris Karloff. Uh, Why they didn't ask Lionel Atwell, the original Dr. X, to return, um, I couldn't really find an explanation for. I wonder if they felt, because they're changing the entire character, it might be confusing to people who do remember the first one to have it be the same actor. I don't know, like... First, I thought maybe it was because Atwell had kind of left horror behind him, right? He did that string of, like, three or four in a row, and then we didn't see him for a long time. But he was just in Son of Frankenstein, right? So maybe it was just the idea that Karloff had more box office appeal. Either way, Karloff didn't work out anyway, um, because he was busy shooting the spy thriller Enemy Agent for Universal Studios. So, Warners then turned to Bela Lugosi. But he was shooting Dark Eyes of London in the UK. Mm-hmm. So then their third choice, uh, British actor James Stevenson, uh, declined the role so that he could appear in the historical drama The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Okay. I can see why he would, you know, go for historical drama over this. Yeah. So finally, Foy turned to one of Warner's contract players at the time, so an actor who was just under contract for the studio and didn't really have a choice of whether to say no or not to something, (laughs) and that was an actor named Humphrey Bogart. Oh boy. What's kind of important for listeners to understand is that in 1939, Humphrey Bogart was not yet one of, you know, the great... Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, he wasn't one of the great American icons of masculinity that he would become, right? (laughs) Much of Bogart's fame and success was still in his future mm-hmm. at this point. The movies you know him for, the roles you know him for, are yet to come. Born on Christmas Day, 1899, in New York City, to Belmont Bogart and Maud Humphrey, <laughs> his father was a heart surgeon, and his mother was a commercial artist for advertising They lived in the fashionable Upper West Side of Manhattan. They were quite wealthy. Uh, He attended prestigious private schools, uh, elite boarding schools, uh, but he was sullen and had little interest in his education. He was supposed to go to Yale for university, uh, but his chances were dashed when he was expelled from his boarding school for getting into a fight with the headmaster and throwing him into a pond on the campus. That's so great. (laughs) His parents were very disappointed. I can imagine. I would be proud. (laughs) So with basically no future anymore, because the whole plan that his parents had for him had now been dashed, uh, Bogart enlisted with the Navy on the promise of adventure and sexy foreign girls. After his military service was over, Bogart distanced himself from his family, uh, who had fallen on hard times following a series of bad investments. He developed a hatred of pretensions, snobs, phonies, and authority, and joined the Coast Guard. I really hate authority. I'm going to join the Coast Guard. (laughs) So, soon after this, a childhood friend got Bogart a job in the production office of a film company in New York. From there, he got a job as the stage manager of a play by his boss's daughter. And then in 1921, he made his stage acting debut as a butler with a single line of dialogue. Bogart had been raised to believe that acting was beneath someone of his station, um, but he enjoyed the late hours and the attention. Uh, he would later say that his parents had raised him to be lazy and rich, and he figured that acting was, quote, 
the softest of rackets, unquote. <laughs> he would act on stage in the evenings and then go out to speakeasies and get drunk and get into bar fights at night. Bogart never took acting lessons. Uh, he preferred to learn as he went. Sure. He typically played young, rich, lazy, effeminate men in drawing room comedies. Uh, the type of person who would come in with, like, a polo and shorts and ask if anyone was up for tennis. And, I can't even imagine him in that. Yeah. Uh, he appeared in 17 Broadway productions from 1922 to 1935 in these kinds of roles. With the stock market crash, uh, stage work dropped off, and Bogart began trying to break into films. Throughout the early 30s, he moved back and forth between Hollywood and New York, basically just doing film or stage wherever there was actually work at the time. His career was failing, and by this point he was depressed and beginning to drink heavily. Mm. Uh, then, in 1935, Bogart was cast as escaped murderer Duke Manti in The Petrified Forest. Uh, that was the villain of the piece. The play's producer had thought of Bogart only as playing rich young layabouts, but decided that he was perfect to play Manti when he heard Bogart's voice, which to the producer sounded dry and tired. The play was a huge success, with most critical praise going to Bogart's performance. So Warner Brothers bought the film rights to The Petrified Forest, uh, intending to give Bogart's role to Edward G. Robinson. Uh, however, the lead actor of the play and film, Leslie Howard, refused to do the film without Bogart. So, Bogart got his part back. Jack Warner wanted Bogart to change his name and adopt a screen name, which Bogart stubbornly refused to do. Good. Humphrey Bogart is a great name. I guess apparently it sounded really sissy to people in the 30s. Like, that was the, like, connotation that Maybe that sounded Humphrey? to people. Yeah, it was just like, to them, it was, you know, Humphrey Bogart kind of was the, like, oh. connotation it would have. And we just don't have that now because we've had, you know, half a century of Humphrey Bogart. See? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was more of an Edgar G. Robinson. I apologize. So the film version of The Petrified Forest in 1936 was a huge commercial and critical success. And once again, Bogart was highly praised by the critics. Um, so, because of that, Warner Brothers reluctantly put him on contract, uh, but put him into their B-movie department, stereotyping him into playing villainous gangsters and other heavies in crime dramas. The roles were very repetitive, and the long shooting hours and hot lights and constant assembly line schedule of contract studio filmmaking made Bogart realize that the working film actor's life wasn't the soft and lazy one he had hoped for. <laughs> Bogart didn't like the repetitive gangster villain parts he was being given, but Warner's had really no interest in making him a star. They basically would give him a role once James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, George Raft, and Paul Muni had passed it over. Declining work, if you were a contract actor like he was, could mean suspension without pay. So Bogart did what the studio told him, and churned out B-movies at a rate of about one movie every two months from 1936 to 1940. That's pretty busy. Yeah, it was a very constant grind. By the end of the decade, Bogart was tired of the roles he was playing, and so perhaps in an ironic punishment, the studio gave him two films so outside his wheelhouse that he considered them his two worst performances. In 1938, Warners put him in the hillbilly musical <laughs> Swing Your Lady. A hillbilly musical? Yeah. Swing Your Lady. And then in 1939, they put him in his only horror role, The Return of Dr. X. The only reason he really was okay with making the movie was that it was the directorial debut of a friend of his, uh, Vincent Sherman. Born Abraham Orovitz in 1906, Sherman started as a stage actor in the late 20s, 
coming to Hollywood in the early 30s and transitioning to writing, becoming valued by the studio for his ability to rewrite scripts very quickly into successful hits. Warner Brothers gave him his shot at directing, uh, initially in the B-movie department, uh, but eventually he would actually move up to A-pictures uh, later in his career. Shooting on Dr. X started poorly, however, because Sherman treated his first directing job like it was an A-picture, costing the studio time and money on meticulous shots and multiple takes and, you know, uh, trying to plan everything out to be, like, the perfect uh, artistic statement. So... I can, I can get behind that, because it's your very first time, right? Yeah. So after the first day, Jack Warner sent a memo threatening to fire Sherman if he didn't get his ass in gear, and so things sped up on the film after that. Okay. While The Return of Dr. X was a new genre for Bogart, he was still in the role of the heavy. He was still the villain of the piece. The heroic lead was played by Wayne Morris, who was actually billed above Bogart uh, on the film's advertisements. An L.A. native, Morris was the fullback on his high school varsity football team and started in film as an actor in 1936 at age 22, uh, his first big hit being a role as a boxer in 1937's Kid Galahad. When World War II broke out, he would leave the film industry to join the Navy as a Hellcat pilot and become a decorated fighter ace. The female lead of the movie is played by Rosemary Lane, who was one of the four Lane sisters who were all actresses. Um, they started on stage in the late 20s, and eventually they were all contracted by Warner Brothers by the late 1930s. Uh, they appeared together in the 1938 to 1941 trilogy, Four Daughters, Four Wives, Four Mothers. <laughs> oh boy. The sisters also acted separately, uh, as often as they did together. Uh, Priscilla Lane was the most successful of the four on her own, had the most solo roles, got the closest to being like a genuine star. Uh, though Lola Lane inherited the Torchy Blaine girl reporter role in 1938 from Glenda Farrell, thus becoming the inspiration for comic books Lois Lane in the process. The Return of Dr. X would be released on December 2nd, 1939. Uh, it was critically panned, but commercially successful, uh, thus ensuring the continuation of Vincent Sherman's directing career. Humphrey Bogart would continue to struggle through B-movies uh, until 1941's High Sierra, which was his final villainous role. The writer of that film, John Huston, would make his directing debut with the 1941 remake of The Maltese Falcon, casting Bogart in the lead, thus creating Bogart's heroic anti-hero mm -hmm. image, mm -hmm. which would launch him to stardom and iconhood, uh, as well as cementing the film noir genre at the same time. Cool. So, how are we watching this film? Well, Return of Dr. X is available to stream on Google Play and YouTube, uh, and it's also on DVD in the Legends of Horror collection from Warner Home Video. So if you would like to watch along with us, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can also check out the first Dr. X episode on our website there. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude while we watch the film, and when we come back, we will discuss the return of Dr. X. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Return of Dr. X from 1939, directed by Vincent Sherman. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? It was a pretty fun time. You're a big Humphrey Bogart fan. I am. What did you think of Bogey in this movie? It's, it's kind of a treat to see him like this, because it's very unusual to see him a little bit out of his depth. For sure, for sure. 
so Return of Doctor X has a plot that I would consider to be occasionally nonsense, <laughs> but often a lot of fun. Uh, what's the movie about, Sarah? Well, we follow reporter Walter Garrett as he stumbles across the body of murdered starlet Angela Morova. I feel like the adjective you could use for how he does anything is stumbles, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I chose that word specifically for that. He promptly calls in the story to his editor, waits for the cops to read the published story in the evening edition, and just waits around for the cops to come in after. Yeah. He doesn't actually call them in. Anyways, I, that's, I can't get over... That really bothers me. Anyways... When the cops do show up, you know, he's there waiting, and he, you know, goes, yeah, she's just in there, and the body is missing, and that's why you call the thing into the cops before you publish the story. Yeah, or why, like, as a newspaper, you should fact-check your reporter before running, like, a headline story in the evening edition. Yeah. Besides this, this movie is enjoyable for me. <laughs> but this part, it just really gets my goat. Not only is the body missing, but later, Morova turns up alive and is suing the paper mm -hmm. for publishing this false story. Garrett is fired, mm -hmm. rightfully so, uh, and he goes to talk with a doctor friend of his named Dr. Mike Rhodes. Rhodes gets called to a murder scene to identify the body, and Garrett goes with, and it's the murder of a type 1 professional blood donor. Yeah, because that was a somehow a thing. Yeah. Um, so, um, since I just brought this up, the type 1 thing, blood types are referenced in this movie as type 1, 2, 3, 4. Mm -hmm. Type 1 being rare and type 4 being common. I guess this is kind of the categorical system that we used to use. We now use letters, uh, type 4 being type AB, and type 1 being type O. Um, some places still do use the number, yeah. the numerical system, I guess. This movie does. It's just, you know, you don't need to know it going in, but it, it comes up in the movie. It's just weird when you watch the movie if you've never heard that system before. I guess there was a time when both systems were in use, and it wasn't really, like, stand... confusing. That was the problem. And so it wasn't really standardized until, like, the 50s is when, like, the letter system became, like, the standard. Mm -hmm. Which is weird, because from some brief reading I did, the letter system came first. And then someone <laughs> else did the numbers, and then they were using both, and then they stuck with the letters. But what's really important here is just that type 1 or type O is the universal donor... And type 4, or AB, is the universal receiver. Hence why this guy, a type 1 person, is a professional blood donor. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he's been murdered, and Garrett notices that this victim was murdered in the same way as Morova. Um, stabbed in the chest and to the heart in a very precise way, and drained of blood. Rhodes checks a blood sample that they, fi that they find at the scene... And it's unlike anything he's seen before. So he takes it to his mentor, who is a hematologist, Dr. Flagg. In taking it over to Dr. Flagg's residence, he meets Dr. Kane, Flagg's assistant. And this is Humphrey Bogart. I'm just thinking of how he enters this movie. It's the best. Just like stroking a <laughs> rabbit, like a <laughs> Bond villain or something. And he has the, uh, uh line of white in his hair, and it looks real bad. Yeah, he's also, like, super sweaty and pale, you know. Clammy. Clammy. He's clammy. It's just... Which is, it's like a plot point, which I'll explain later. Sure. <laughs> it's just quite a makeup job, is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, there are times when he comes in and they've put some dark makeup on his cheeks to make him look more gaunt, and it's just, it's a treat to see him like this. We also see, um, entering this residence, uh, after Rhodes leaves, um, Morova goes in to flag for a transfusion. So Garrett recognizes Kane from news clippings, 
and identifies him as Dr. Xavier, child killer. <laughs> uh who apparently experimented to see how long children could go without air? Food. Without food. Yeah. Okay. They they said it very quickly. None of this was in like the headlines that we saw. We just saw a child killer and executed and yeah. all that. Um, so he shouldn't be alive, right? Because he was executed. So they go confront Flag to be like, what the fuck, guy? And he kind of explains everything. He's found a way to bring people back to life. You first electrocute the dead body to decoagulate the blood, and then you inject the body with blood and some chemicals, and the blood has to match that person's type, and they get brought back to life somehow, um, but they don't stay alive because they don't create new blood themselves, so they need more blood transfusions. But... Flag has been trying to create synthetic blood. <laughs> but he keeps failing. Kane is a type 1 p- person. Mm-hmm. Uh, has type 1 blood. Um, and because he's going to die without transfusions, he's the one who killed Morova for her blood. Flag was like, shit, why did you kill this person? Brought her back to life, but knew it was inevitable that she'd die eventually. And Kane is the one who murdered that other donor. He's like a weird medical vampire. Yeah. After Rhodes and Garrett leave, Kane kills Flag um, and steals his list of type 1 blood donors and kidnaps the type 1 nurse love interest Joan, who we met in the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. The police, Rhodes and Garrett, track Kane down, where he has Joan tied up in a cabin in the woods, and Kane is shot by police. Garrett gets his newspaper job back and gets a daily column, and presumably Rhodes and Joan get together. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Yeah. So, the only similarities, like, okay, so we explained in the beginning how the return of Dr. X only uses the phrase Dr. X for its, like, promotional value. It's a in-name-only sequel, which, yeah. you know, is a lot more common these days, I feel. That being said, there are some similarities to the, I guess, original Dr. X. The main one being the plot point of synthetic noun. (laughs) First Dr. X having synthetic flesh, this one having synthetic blood as, like, a plot point. Um, And also of the villain having a fake arm. Sure. Um, Which, as you can kind of tell in my plot summary, doesn't come up at all. Yeah, it's just another weird part of his appearance. Yeah. At this point, I will also just point out that if you want to hear about the history of blood transfusions, because this kind of tangentially relates to it, you can check out episode 12, where we cover the hands of Orlac. He gets his hands transplanted, so I talked a bit about blood transfusions. Um, But I went into a bit more detail in the discussion part of episode 15 on wolf blood. Um, Right. Yeah, and then we also talk a little bit about uh, what I wrote in my notes as the history of bringing people back to life. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> in uh, episode 68 on the film, The Man They Could Not Hang. Yeah, because overall, like, this is a very Warner Brothers-esque take on the kind of material we saw in The Man They Could Not Hang, and also... The Man Who Could Not Die. The Man Who Changed His Mind. Uh. <laughs> But yeah, it's a, it's a very similar thing. Like, the whole scene where he brought the rabbit back to life reminded me of, like, that whole thing you talked about with, like, the guy who brought dogs back to life and, like, filmed it and stuff, right? How did you like this film? Uh, I liked it enough. <laughs> um, like, the exact nature of cause and effect doesn't line up sometimes in this movie. Like, it feels like it was written and made quickly sometimes because there's things like when they go to the murder scene of Rogers, the blood donor, and the cops are telling the reporter, like, the cause of death and everything, and the body's still there at the scene, but the cops already have, like, an autopsy report from the coroner. There's just, there's just things sometimes where if you stop and think about anything in this movie for too long, it, it doesn't add up. But because the movie's, like, not very long, and it has this kind of breathless... Warner Brothers 
pace. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole thing is, like, fast enough that it can be kind of a fun ride instead of, you know, a hindrance of what the fuck is this plot holes. Like, <laughs> the movie's going fast enough that you don't have enough time, really, to let the fact that it makes little sense bother you. Yeah, you're right with Rhodes and Garrett as they are tracking down this mystery. Yeah, the, like, you know, like, there's, there's stuff like, 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 so Dr. X kidnaps Joan and takes her to, like, an abandoned barn in, like, Jersey? They say Jersey? It's New Jersey. It's, like, rural New Jersey. And he takes a cab. And he, like, brings her into the cab and, like, tells her that he's taking her to Flegs. And then when she realizes that he's not, he, like, you know, chloroforms her and then takes her to this abandoned barn in the middle of nowhere. And ties her up. Yeah, and the cab driver's like, all right, is this fine? Like, hey, Mac, is this good? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, this will be perfect. And, like... And drags the body out of the back. Yeah, like, that is, like, are we... Like, I don't think we're supposed to think about... What the fuck is going on with that cab driver very hard, you know what I mean? Like, what What does this cab driver see on a nightly basis that this seems fine? Yeah, well, he's in the, he's in the Warner Brothers version of New York, so... <laughs> um, I had a question for you, Sarah. Sure. Um, who do you think is the main character in this movie? Because Wayne Morris, who plays Garrett, has top billing... And then it's Humphrey Bogart, and then it's Rosemary Lane who plays Joan, and then it's Dennis Morgan who plays Rhodes. I think Garrett is supposed to be the main protagonist. Okay. Because the movie starts and ends with him. That's a good point. Um, but I do see what you're saying. It feels like there are far too many characters in this movie. Well, it's just that, like, we have this separation of you know, our protagonist into two people because there's Garrett as the reporter and um, Rhodes, the doctor, and Rhodes is our, like, romantic lead. And it's just a little bit weird that we have both of them. I guess there's, like, a law that there has to be a reporter as the, like, lead character of a Warner Brothers movie. Because, I mean, <laughs> this is everything you expect from a Warner Brothers movie. You've got an urban setting, you've got quick-talking reporters, grumpy editors exasperated police who may or may not be fully competent, um, you know, and decently stylish production design. Yeah. Maybe it's also because we're going so quickly through each, like, I don't want to say plot point, but, Mm. like, we are kind of going at breakneck pace, that at times it does feel like there's too many characters in this movie. Like, I think after Garrett starts things off with that news story about Morova, Mm -hmm. Uh, he doesn't really need to be around. Yeah. Because Rhodes kind of takes over. But I don't, like, you, you could, I'm not a fiction writer, right? So I I don't know if I could make it work where Rhodes is the <laughs> person who starts everything off, but I'm sure that there would be a way to make it work. Would Warner Brothers feel comfortable having quick-witted, smart-talking doctors instead <laughs> of reporters? It's just like, it. it definitely has that feel of... The kind of murder mysteries that you start to get in the 40s where, like, there's a lot of extraneous details and it's almost as if the movie expects you to forget most of them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of going on with Garrett, um, he's also the comedic relief in this film. A little bit. Which um, fits with Dr. X Mm -hmm. because the reporter was the comedic relief in that film as well. But here it felt more cohesive. Yeah, it's it's it's. It kind of felt like sprinkles on the overall Sunday, rather than two completely different meals of horror and comedy. I was gonna say a Neapolitan to like continue your ice cream metaphor, <laughs> but you're totally right, and I much preferred this. Um, it was basically in the original Doctor X, the reporter character was a comedy character, like first and foremost. And not only that, his comedy was mostly slapstick. It was, like, falling backwards down a flight of stairs into, like, a pile of skeletons and then, like, jumping into the air and screaming while sucking your thumb and hanging from the chandelier, like, shaggy from Scooby-Doo level comedy. Here, the joke with Garrett is mostly just that, like, 
he's kind of like a country bumpkin a little bit. Like, he's basically Clark Kent, because he's this, like, Kansas country boy who's come to the big city to be a reporter. So he's kind of just got, like, this, like, golly gee attitude to him that contrasts with all of the, like, slick city slickers around him. He does have a little bit of physical comedy. But it's not as broad. Like, he feels like he can still be a real person, whereas Lee Tracy felt like a clown. Yeah, Garrett actually gets a chance to be a bit serious. Like, we see him investigating things and seeing when Morova goes to get her blood transfusion and actually seems like a serious character. The movie's, like, clearly nowhere near the level of the original Doctor X, though. Like, in terms of overall production quality. Well, that was an A picture. This is a B picture. Right. But I do think this movie, you can tell, is, like, clearly trying. I would agree. It doesn't have the kind of throwaway feeling that some of these B pictures we've seen lately have had. It's a nice little mix of murder mystery, sci-fi, and horror. There's something in this film that makes it feel like a better than average B movie, Mm -hmm. a a higher production than a regular B movie. Do you think that has something to do with the bombastic score? Yeah, there's the music in this movie is working over time. It's wall-to-wall music, and like every moment is scored. It's got a bit of what they used to call Mickey Mousing, Mm -hmm. where you kind of You know, every time someone steps, the music has a note or something. But it also, like, scores every emotion and really makes all of the emotions feel super heightened, no matter what the performance on screen is really like. It's the kind of music that John Williams would eventually be, like, homaging when he did scores for movies like Star Wars or Indiana Jones. That kind of very lush, classic Hollywood sound. Yeah, um, the person who did the music is Bernard Kahn. And uh, he he's really going overboard, but I can't really fault him for it. Yeah, no one was going to stop him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of interesting seeing this movie right after Dark Eyes of London, mm-hmm. because they're both kind of similar in having a mystery structure with a kind of, like, scientist serial killer at the heart of things. Um, This doesn't have the police procedural feeling, though, at all. This is much more the typical Warner Brothers-style horror with the reporter and the doctor and and whatever, and running around trying to figure things out. One thing that I really noticed as a contrast, though, you know, just last week with Dark Eyes of London, we were talking about Diane, Diane Stewart in that movie, played by Greta Gint, and how, like, even though she was just a typical damsel in distress archetype there were little things in her characterization that made her a little bit more Mm -hmm. in contrast joan in this movie played by rosemary lane is nothing she's just a big bag of nothing she could fall into the sexy lamp trope if lamps could give blood blood yeah (laughs) yeah exactly yeah 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 like she gets introduced (laughs) at the start so that we know she has type one Right? There's a little plot point where we find that out. Mm-hmm. And because of that little plot point, she and Rhodes meet and decide to go on a date. When they go on their date, it ends up turning into like a drive all around town to hunt for clues for the mystery. And everywhere that Rhodes and Garrett stop to look for clues, they leave her behind in the car. So she doesn't even really get to take part in the, like, going around finding clues mystery solving, she's just sitting there in the car, and it's just kind of a joke that, like, she's bored while the boys get to have fun or whatever. And then she gets kidnapped at the end by Humphrey Bogart and gets tied up, and then they rescue her. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, she has nothing else. She is, she's nothing in this movie. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think they could have done something fun with it. Yeah, Totally. There does feel like there's too many characters. Our two main protagonists have, like, you don't need both of them to go around, right? So it does feel like a bit of a hodgepodge with it. It could have been really interesting if maybe if Rhodes was Joan instead, you know? Yeah, I feel like part of the problem is like a code thing because I just feel like the women in Warner Brothers movies pre-code were a bit more able to be spunky and independent well, Night at the Wax Museum. Right, exactly. It's called Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah, Night at the Museum. 
but yeah, she's she's tracking down clues and getting herself into trouble. Well, and even even um, Faye Ray in that movie, who's the damsel in distress, like gets to have a personality. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the personality that Warner Brothers knew how to give women was that kind of like wry, cynical city girl personality. And the problem with that is I feel like that archetype edges up against what the code says you can't do because that archetype is usually implied to be like a bit promiscuous, you know, and stuff. So instead you have to have these like innocent, angelic young women who just have no personality at all because that would imply that they have like lives of their own or something. Yeah. So do you want to talk about Humphrey Bogart's performance? He is not suited to this material. He is not. Like I said in the beginning, um, it's kind of a neat thing to see him in, because he does feel out of his depth. Uh, I don't think it's the worst thing. It, yeah, it, it's not his best, but it's not his worst. He's fine. He's clearly trying. He just... Feels awkward. Yeah, it's it's clearly something that he's not comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he can really give this role the kind of, like panache or histrionics that like a Lionel Atwell or a Boris Karloff or a Bela Lugosi could give it, right? I mean, I can see what they were trying to do with the makeup job, but on top of his performance being awkward, it's one of those things where like to pull off performing with a makeup job like that, you have to have confidence in what you're doing. And I don't think he really did. And so it just compounds the secondhand embarrassment you feel for him, I mean, it just looks ridiculous on him in a way that I don't think it would have looked ridiculous on those other actors. Yeah, maybe that's what kind of makes it fun for me. No, for sure. You're so used, like, we're so used to seeing him as, like, this confident, suave guy. Like, even in Casablanca, when he, his character's a little bit out, out of his depth, he seems like he has a plan. Yeah, he right? can talk himself out of anything. And and you're, here you're just like, who, who is this? <laughs> no, you're totally right. Like, ultimately, the fact that he's kind of out of his depth here is what makes this movie fun to watch for a modern audience. With all the hindsight of knowing that, you know, this is Humphrey Bogart here. Do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah, for sure. Where do you feel this fits on the list? We have Dr. X and number 32. And we have The Man They Could Not Hang at number 21. Those are kind of the two closest films to compare it to. Right. I don't think this is better than Dr. X. Um, I would agree. In fact, where I'm looking for this is, I don't think it's better than last week's movie. Um, I, I, I had fun watching this, but I don't think it's a better horror movie than Dark Eyes of London. So my ceiling for this would be below Dark Eyes of London at number 38. Uh, above Mystery of the Wax Museum. That's about as high as I would go. And then my floor, I figured this was definitely better than The Vampire Bat. So my floor is number 42, above The Vampire Bat, below Supernatural. So that's that's the range I was looking in. Does that seem right to you? Um, You're a little lower than where I was looking, but we're okay. right in the same area. Where were you looking? I was feeling like this was uh, not as good as Dracula's Daughter at 34. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would put this below that above the 1935 Student of Prague with my floor at Mystery of the Wax Museum at 38. Okay. So, so a little bit of overlap there. So, I mean, basically your floor is my ceiling. Yeah. We've got that, like, that's the spot then, is below Dark Eyes of London, above Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah. Does that sort of feel right to you, or do you have a strong feeling that this is better than Dark Eyes of London? I just felt Dark Eyes of London ended up, because it feels less ridiculous than this movie, I mean, this movie's a lot of fun, but it's ridiculous. And because of that, it undercuts the horror a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's more pulpy, right? It's, it's uh, a mad scientist with a fake hand and a shock of white through his hair and, like, a pet rabbit going around, like... <laughs> stealing people's blood so he can inject it into himself because he's actually a zombie. Like, <laughs> there's something about that versus just like, oh yeah, this dude who's murdering people for insurance money and taking advantage of the blind and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would agree with that. 
Okay, so do we want to put it there? Sure. Entering the list... Should we discuss how it compares with Mystery of the Wax Museum? I mean, I think we're both kind of agreed that it's it's better, right? Yeah. Um, I think part of the reason for that is we found Mystery of the Wax Museum not super scary. Yeah. Yeah, it was more, like, kind of creepy. It had the two-tone Technicolor. Um, it was, like, the Dr. X people coming back to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is better than that. Well, I think the thing is, is that Mystery of the Wax Museum's story was about, like, a a wax artist who wanted revenge on people for wrecking his wax sculptures. And this movie's about Humphrey Bogart as a medical vampire. So, like, (laughs) ultimately this is better. This involves people dying and coming back to life and, like, weird shit like that. So I'm kind of more into this. Cool. Just just in case uh, people wanted us to discuss it, now we have acknowledged it. Sure. Cool. So then, if that's the case... This movie is entering the list at number 38, below The Dark Eyes of London and above Mystery of the Wax Museum. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find links to the other episodes that I've mentioned, as well as our appeals box. If you if you would like to contest either this ranking or any other ranking of a film, you can submit an appeal through there, or you can contact us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every week on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us wherever good podcasts are found through our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review, if that is possible, on the podcasting service that you listen to us on. Or, alternatively, you can just tell people about us. Spread the good news of Scream Scene uh, (laughs) through social media or in person with people face-to-face, like in the old days. Is it weird to say spread the good word for a horror movie podcast? (laughs) I mean, I'm already going to hell, so... (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Uh, Well... Um, Another way that you can support the show is monetarily through our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. The old castle scream scene has some holes in the battlements, some weak spots in the foundation, and if you'd like to help us shore them up, we would really appreciate it. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And at higher donation levels, like $5 and $10, you can get weekly bonus audio and monthly horror short fiction. We're hoping to hit our Patreon goal, and when that happens, we will start doing monthly bonus episodes covering horror-adjacent movies, like... Clue. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. 1999's The Mummy. And more. So hop on down to <laughs> patreon.com slash scream scene. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we've got a real treat. We are heading back to Universal Studios for, you know, a real, a real horror movie. And it's also the debut of Vincent Price ah. on the list <laughs> because we are watching 1940s The Invisible Man Returns. Great, a couple of sequels in a row. Yeah, yeah, lots of sequels. Getting, yep, lots of those from now on. Super stoked about Vincent Price joining the show, though. For sure. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.